Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. So on the podcast today, we have Tara Swart. Uh, So Tara Swart is uh, on our EFG Future Leaders panel. She is a neuroscientist, a medical doctor, executive advisor, senior lecturer at MIT Sloan, and author of a bestseller, The Source, which has translations in 36 global territories. Uh, Tara is an advisory board member for many private equity firms, obviously for EFG, talks on many topics around health and wellness, and is the ambassador for a beauty and well-being brand. So we are really honoured to have Tara talk to us about everything that's important to us at the moment in terms of COVID-19 crisis, how do we build resilience, and um, what, uh, what do we need to do to make sure we see through this. So uh, without further ado, let's speak to Tara. Tara, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thank you. I'm, as I said to you, when you asked me, I'm so flattered to have been asked onto your podcast. And I'm, you know, as soon as I saw that you were doing a podcast at the beginning of lockdown, I thought, yeah, of course, Mose is always at the edge of like any like, you know, technological or social media thing that's going on. Well, you're, uh, you're, you're way too kind. You're way too kind. But uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, whenever you know, you've come to the events uh, and the videos. Uh, everybody very much looks forward to your to your insights. So um, on the uh, on the podcast, I always start with uh, with trying to sort of dig a bit deeper and understand uh, you know who, who the people are who come onto the onto the podcast. So uh, mm-hmm. so uh, the first question I have is uh, you know uh, what is your background? You know what have you been doing in your career to date and uh, and uh, maybe some successes and failures that uh, and what you've learned o- o- over the course of your career. Mm. Wow, that's that's a lot. But um, and it's you know it's a, my career has been slightly unusual or unorthodox. So um, let's see what sense we can make of it. So in terms of background, I think it's quite probably pertinent to say that I'm the child of first generation um, Indian immigrant parents to and grew up in London. And so I did have a big expectation on me to become a doctor. And I luckily was good at science and maths and things. But when I look back now, I think, you know, I was good at languages. I was good at history and geography too. And um, so those things weren't really explored maybe as much as they could have been like earlier in my life. Um, So I went to medical school and really blossomed there, actually. I didn't really love school, but I loved medical school. Um, And so I did everything extra that you could do. So you can do an intercalated BSc in the third year after you've done the two preclinical years of medicine. And that's when I first discovered my passion for neuroscience. So every topic that was available, I would pick the neuro unit of everything. So I did neuroanatomy, neuropharmacology, um, 
the, uh, you know, looked at drug dependence and aging. And so, you know, all things to do with the brain. And during that year, I did a, a little lab research project and I got the opportunity to do a PhD. And there were a few neurologists doing PhDs. Um, and I thought I wanted to be a neurologist. So I, it was a tough decision. You know, do you carry on to medical school with all your friends and become a doctor like you always thought you would? Or do you go and do something a bit different? So Eventually, I decided to do the PhD um, in neuropharmacology. So I did that for three years, and that was all at King's College London. So when I finished that, I thought I needed a change of environment. So I applied to go to Oxford to finish my medical studies, and I got in. Um, and they asked me a question then, which is that, you know, we're concerned that you've left medicine and done something else. And what's this transition going to be like for you? Or, you know, are you really committed to, to being a doctor? And I I remember saying this transition is going to be easier for me than the one, you know, to leave medicine because medicine was always the thing, like, you know, since I was a kid. Um, and that turned out to be true. You know, in clinical practice, I loved meeting the people and I realized that I loved psychiatry because it was talking to people. It was about emotions. It was about mood. It was about how your like brain can play tricks on you. And so I specialized in psychiatry um, after the year of medicine and surgery, I did six years of psychiatry. Um, so I suppose that then leads to my first success slash failure. And I, I really think they're like two sides of the same coin. Um, so I'd become increasingly disillusioned with my work for many reasons, just, you know, but mostly intellectual stimulation. So I'd been thinking about what else I could do for two years and medicine so vocational that I did really feel like I couldn't do anything else for quite a long time. Um, and then, you know, I got some advice and I started thinking more about it and speaking to more people. And eventually I decided to leave medicine and go on an executive coaching course and try to set up my own practice. Um, I got a lot of pushback to that, not just from my family, but just from people who couldn't understand why you would stop being a doctor and, and become a, a coach. Um, and so I actually moved countries at the same time and got divorced at the same time. So it was a very oh, low wow. point Tra of my traumatic life. time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I did this coaching course and everybody else on the coaching course were, you know, HR directors or finance people. And they all understood like business terminology and they had networks. And I, I didn't have any of those things. Um, but, you know, I think the sort of good student aspect helped me out. So I, you know, I did really well on the course. And I also realized when it finished that people weren't going to phone you up and say they wanted to, to be coached. So I set about, you know, building my network. Um, headhunters were very helpful to me at the beginning, like very kind to me and introduced me to lots of people. And so I seemed to have this natural like idea about how to, to I mean, it was a freelance practice then, but I've grown it into a, you know, a, a proper consultancy now. And that all came quite naturally but obviously there was a point at which it plateaued and then i started looking for a mentor and i wanted a mentor that had a very different brain to mine and so i think often women look for female mentors sponsors champions but i wanted i wanted that male perspective on things and so i found an amazing mentor um he'd actually been he was the retired ceo of a huge search firm and he helped me to put a lot more structure into place to grow this from a individual, you know, practice to, to an actual business. Um, 
And so, you know, some of the good things that happened along the way were that neuroscience suddenly became a buzzword in business and leadership about three years in, probably, to my journey. And so I started speaking about neuroscience and that kind of, at first, I thought that's a way to get coaching clients. But in the end, I realized, like, it's a revenue stream of its own. And um, I, you know, I had a vision to grow that into my biggest revenue stream. And that happened over a a couple of years and you know it happened beyond my wildest expectations um and then people say oh, you should write a book and um i sort of got roped into because i liked my co-authors writing a couple of books but my heart wasn't really in it and actually baroness professor susan greenfield who was was my tutor at oxford but is also an iconic female neuroscientist gave me some advice which was don't write a book because people are telling you to one day you'll wake up and there'll be something that you feel you have no choice but to write about. And that turned out to be so true. So when I got the idea for the source, it had its own momentum because I really wanted that message to be out there in the world. So I would say one of my learnings is that asking for help is really important. And I I think people don't do it enough. Um, I sort of had to because I'd gone from being like a you know really experienced doctor to being the absolute bottom of the pile in a, in a new career. Um, so I think actually you know pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, having to ask for help, has turned out to be a really good thing. You know I wouldn't have felt like that I think if I'd stayed being a doctor for the rest of my career. Um, and you know I've said that I think failure and success are sort of two sides of one coin, but. I also just think that anything that's gone wrong is still part of your story. And as long as you've learned from it and done something differently as a result, that I don't really regret anything or see it as a failure, but there've definitely been ups and downs in the career and they've, you know, they've been low points and when it's good, everybody thinks you're an overnight success, but you know, I've been running this business for 13 years now. So, so I think sort of those are the points that I'd say. And then um, just to finish off that story. So I, I've stayed within the neuroscience consulting umbrella, but I've done some different things. Like I've used heart rate variability technology to coach traders. And um, I was I was giving a sort of random lecture somewhere and I didn't quite realize that all the attendees were the, I didn't appreciate, I realized, but I didn't appreciate that the attendees were the heads of all the business schools in the world. and. I got, I was so lucky. I got picked up by Stanford and MIT, and then that became a formal relationship with MIT where I'm now um, faculty at MIT Sloan, the business school. Um, so, I mean, I think you make your own luck, but sometimes you're just in the right place at the right time and you've got to grab those opportunities. And, you know, I've certainly had a few of those opportunities put in my way and I've definitely, um, you know, taken them up very um enthusiastically so that's kind of where i am now i'm you know taraswat neuroscience leadership is my business i teach at mit um the source became a uk bestseller the week that it came out and it's got 36 global translations which is just you know beyond what i could have ever expected and, the, so, I was gonna, and there's an audio version <laughs> there's an audio version there's a kindle version um and there's now a paperback that came out this year so yeah all formats that's great. And thank you very much for taking us through that. Um, what are the things that, uh, you know, if you like, you, you, you enjoy most, you know, these days, obviously, you know, that, that journey often, um, when, when people look back on careers and, and look back at, you know, where they've, 
enjoy themselves most uh you know they kind of look back mm. where have you enjoyed yourself most in terms of your your, your career where where would you kind of look back and thought that was really really enjoyable may not necessarily be the most remunerative um mm. but where you've actually you know learned a lot and uh, and felt you were progressing well, I think I've always tried to make sure that that's, there's lots of variety um, in what I do. And, you know, I've never had a job where I sat in an office because, okay, I mean, you might have some clinic days as a doctor, but you're walking around wards. And now I, you know, I come into your offices, I, I go to um, all the hedge funds where I coach and I um, travel a lot for my um, speaking, obviously not since lockdown, but prior to that, I was doing all of those things a lot. I would say that the intimacy of the coaching relationship is the most special thing in in you know this 13 year career um of coaching and i've kind of come full circle with that because i started with that then the speaking became the biggest thing around the time of my us book launch so the uk launch was february and us was october i was just on that speaking circuit so much and i was traveling back and forth to the states and i was jet lagged and homesick and um I told you about this over lunch, Mose, but I sort of fell out of love with the big speaking gigs. They're just, um, I found them draining and I listened to my body and I listened to my emotions. So I made a decision around reducing that. And then obviously lockdown meant that it was, it was either by webinar or it wasn't going on as much anyway. And so I've really fallen, you know, very much back in love with the, the coaching conversations, which I still have. And with most of my clients now, we have an agreement that we do it by audio and we both walk at the same time because obviously that's good for your brain. And that's actually worked out really well. And I think having been a psychiatrist, that just getting to know someone so well and getting to help them to like be their best self is, is just extremely rewarding. Um, I wrote the book because neuroscience is for everyone so it didn't feel right to me that it was only for people who could afford one-to-one coaching or 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 attend you know a a sort of high profile event um so i actually feel better about not doing as much speaking because everything i speak about is in the book and and you know most people in the world can have access to that if they want to um and i actually really love doing podcasts because i do i do love talking about neuroscience and it's it's just such a high impact way to um again to to help people who hear these things and can make some changes in their life absolutely so um you joined uh, us uh, on our on our future leaders panel and it's been uh, in fact <laughs> time's flown by i think uh 2017 when you joined uh, our future leaders panel but uh, you actually came and spoke to us uh, two or three years before that uh, mm. um, at one of our offsites mm. and um Obviously, with Future Leaders Panel, it was, uh, I would say, you know, uh, we were discussing a little bit earlier, a bit of a risk because you just don't know how, how things will mm. pan out. But the, the idea was that we're moving into a world with, you know, prominent leaders, um, you know, Jeff Bezos at Amazon or Zuckerberg at Facebook or, um, you know, Elon Musk today uh, and Steve Jobs of the past. Uh, so real mm-hmm. powerful leaders who've you know, obviously created a huge amount of wealth, but had 
um, were able to sort of single-handedly take industries and reshape them completely. Um, and uh, certainly Elon Musk today is probably the one, uh, and Jeff Bezos are probably the ones that are in the ascendancy at, at this point in time. And very much our thought was, well, how do we, how do we find these, uh, you know, individuals before they become, you know, superstars, if you like? Um, and obviously your inputs were very, very interesting to us about, you know, what are the things that make great leaders tick? Um, and what are the habits they should be, um, uh, you know, taking on to ensure they keep uh, at the top of their game? Um, so all of those things were obviously, you know, very, very uh, important to us. And you spend many hours with myself and the team to look for, you know, different character traits um, and, uh, you know, watching videos and so on and so forth, mm. which, which were, you know, absolutely fascinating. And, you know, we learned uh, and, and myself and the team learned a lot uh, through that process. Um, so maybe you can just um, give your thoughts and your perspective on uh, on that journey um uh, and uh, you know where you've helped us and uh, you know what are the the key things that great leaders have yeah so i mean i've said this to you before but i really want to say it like out loud that i thought that was such a progressive idea just the future leaders panel uh, anyway but also having a neuroscientist on it was at the time a a bit unusual. I mean, I think, I think Wendy from Billions has kind of really <laughs> legitimised the whole yeah. idea of having someone like that as part of your team. But yeah. um, you know, you thought a bit before before that show came out. So I always, you know, I I also like to, you know, know what's the latest technology, what's what's everyone doing, and you know, how is different ways of doing things. And I really like that about you. And I always felt so appreciated by your team. And I think that's the lovely thing about knowledge sharing from really different backgrounds so like with my coaching i'm a doctor and a neuroscientist so obviously i know things that a hedge fund manager doesn't know but i couldn't do their job but i can help them with the things that i know so um probably just as a disclaimer to say my coaching is more consulting in style because of you know my academic background um and so yeah i always felt with your team like they were so interested in what i had to say and it's just a very, very different perspective and it's very additive. Um, and so I think, you know, the two things that apply the most in terms of like whether I speak to your audiences or work with your team are um, neuroplasticity, which is how much the brain can change like throughout adulthood and brain agility, which is basically cognitive diversity. But I always speak about, um, you know, mastering your emotions, understanding your brain body connection, um, listening to your intuition, making good logical decisions, staying motivated and resilient and having, you know, an element of creativity and innovation. And so, you know, I could talk about things like you need to sleep and drink enough water and exercise and do some mindfulness. And those things are the physical foundations of building a, a high performing brain. But I would say what I've seen through my work with you and in my coaching and some assessment work that I do for some similar companies is that mental resilience is the one thing that makes the difference between two CVs that look the same or two career trajectories that have been very similar in terms of experience. And the exciting thing about neuroplasticity is that that's something that you can build. So it's not like Mose is very resilient and I'm not so much. If I work at it every day, if I reinforce those neural pathways, 
I could become more resilient than you if you just take it for granted and never do anything about it. So should we start there? I mean, what, what, yeah, what I, else do you think? That, yeah. No, I think that's perfect. Uh, it's, let's, let's start with mental resilience. Uh, what mm. are the, you know, the, what are the key things that uh, one needs to do to, to ensure that happens and, and overcome, mm. for example, the crisis we've just been through? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's really showed up actually during this crisis um, because, you know, obviously there's been like a physical threat to all of us, but there's also the challenges of being cooped up indoors, the relationship challenges, the homeschooling, the the lack of boundaries like between work and home life and everything. And so I think it's always about raising from non-conscious to conscious what's actually going on for you. And, you know, rather than sort of just going along blindly, like trying to hold down the day job and do the housework or whatever it is that, you know, you're balancing, um, you know, acknowledging that there's change, that it might be difficult, that people are adjusting to it at different rates in the home and in the virtual teams is really important. But basically, mental resilience is the ability to withstand change or adversity, um, the quickness of bouncing back from change or adversity, and an element of future-proofing yourself against potential threats. And so the way to do that is basically to bring, not adversity, but to bring change and a certain level of discomfort and basically new learning into your life on a pretty much continual or at least regular basis. And there are some small hacks for things like this, which I think your audience would like so, for example, thermal stress. It's all about stress inoculation. You build up your resilience by withstanding small amounts of stress. And so cold showering, followed by, you know, warming up in a sauna or warming up in a hot bath, is it's thermal stress. So you basically shock your body by having a freezing cold shower or a dip, if you can. And then you demonstrate to your brain that you're able to manage your recovery after that. So you can make yourself feel warm again after you've been really cold. And so there's, there's plenty of evidence that um, both physically and mentally that do that practice of cold showering. And so a lot of guys that I coach say, oh, I turn the shower cold right at the end, but you actually have to do it the other way around so that you get the shock first and then the recovery um, period afterwards. That has impacts on our immunity. There is a study from Finland that shows that 15, 30 or 60 second cold showering reduces the number of colds and flus you get in the winter or reduces the number of days that they last if you get the cold. Um, intermittent fasting is another way of putting a small amount of stress on your body by inducing starvation for two non-consecutive uh, days in the week and then always eating normally the next day or two. But basically, you know, that's those are little physical things. But if we if we think about like bigger things in life, then learning a new language or learning a musical instrument are the most intense effort of learning for your brain. So that actually induces global changes in your brain. And it makes, you know, part of that is that you can deal with change. And so it makes you more resilient. But there are smaller things that you can do, like, um, you know, travel to unusual places, try different foods all the time, mingle with different types of people so we always say like-minded and that's important in terms of values but not like-minded is important you know in a, in a good way is important for neuroplasticity 
Um, and I think that's really shown up recently with all the, um, you know, diversity and bias issues that have, have become, you know, just more in our faces, like during lockdown, coincidentally. Um, so making sure that you get the perspectives of the brains of people who've had a very different life to you is, is part of that, that learning for all of us. Um, and so I, you know, I try to do at least one major neuroplasticity thing every year. So I've, I've learned a few languages. I was going to start, um, the piano just before lockdown, but I haven't been able to do that. So I've done tennis instead. Um, so, you know, like, so it can be a sporting thing. It can be cooking, it can be coding, um, just as long as you're forcing your brain to do something that's difficult until it actually changes because of that effort. Just uh, as you were just talking, I was uh, I was just thinking about, uh, you know, uh, the last three or four months uh, and actually thinking about um, things that happened over the past. Uh, certainly in, in, and I'm going to relate this back to financial market terms, you know, we've had, you know, numerous number of market crashes over the last, you know, 20 years or so. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, the emotions of that, uh, of, of those markets, you know, falling and the horror of, of, uh, the value of your portfolio coming down, um, and then being able to sort of, you know, think about how do you recover from it and what, what things you need to do to recover from it. Actually, you know, I think over the years, um, you know, definitely does build in a lot of resilience because you, you, you basically have your playbook, uh, to, to, to come back to, um, the first time it ever happened, you know, you could see that during the financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 for us, you know, from a, from a markets perspective, that was, if you like, the first major shock that many people had had. Um, and then, you know, we've had a few mini shocks in 2011, uh, 2000, uh, late 2018 and, uh, and now, and you end up building quite a lot of resilience because you, because you kind of know, and, and actually as we've seen, um, from, um, policymakers, they also know how to act and how to act very quickly. So, um, uh, there's probably a lot in about resilience from not just an individual perspective, but how countries and populations act uh, in those in those uh, circumstances. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, the things that you've mentioned are they're different in nature to what I talked about because they're not chosen by you. And so, what the risk is there is that someone like you has built resilience out of that. And it's it's important to say to your audience that after something like that, you do need a recovery period. So, you know, getting some rest and relaxation, a break, um, it is important after, the, uh, you know, whether it's something you've chosen yourself or not. But see, some people wouldn't have come out of that better. And that's the point of difference. For some people, that could have been the end of their career, the end of their marriage, it could have been damaging to their health. So, especially when it's not chosen by you, there's a risk that a big stressor like that that you don't bounce back from it. Um, so what we want people to do is to be building into their lives mini versions of that to build up their resilience so that if something like that happens, they're better able to deal with it. Mm, no, absolutely. And I guess um, there is probably a, a nuance in the sense of uh, which, you've, which you've just um, you know, highlighted is things that you can control and things you can't control. Mm. Um, where presumably much, much more difficult for people to build resilience 
in in areas where they just can't control it. It's just a matter of fact. You know, it could be say uh, you know corporate reorganization, or it could be mm-hmm. um, uh, you know COVID nineteen. <laughs> you know, these things are yeah. completely out of your control. Um, uh, and and what's worse, ones things that you you know you are the cause of, or um, things that you don't have control over things that you don't have control over so from the brain point of view anything new or different is a threat so basically you know change is a threat but controllability is a factor and so often the most senior people in the organization they're in charge of the change they're they're inducing that change they're leading people through that change and sometimes they find it hard to understand why other people are struggling with it so much and it's actually to do with the level of controllability right understood yeah yeah because i, I yeah and i think uh, that that definitely does come across um when uh, you know there's a change of direction uh, at the organizational level um mm. everyone thinks oh that's obvious to do but it isn't obvious for many other people no. who, who are below and, and it obviously has impacts to them and you might not like this analogy, Mose, and it's not about you at all, but the silverback <laughs> gorilla. It can be, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the silverback gorilla in a troop of gorillas has lower stress cortisol levels. So that's the stress hormone. He has lower cortisol levels than other gorillas because of his status being so high. So although senior people have a lot of responsibility, they may be in the public eye, um, you know, and subject to criticism and things like that, because what their status gives them is more control over a lot of things, potential changes or, you know, anything really. They tend to not have that physical stress reaction as much as people lower down who either don't know what's going on or don't know what's going to happen. Right, and that's interesting. And and presumably, um, um, and, and much of your work whenever you've come to speak to us is about... Um, going back in, in the ages in terms of uh, when we all lived in caves. Um, yeah. Is that kind of the same analogies that you're bringing out here? Yeah, that totally. So, I mean, I talk, I talk about cortisol and I, you know, I can talk about the silverback gorilla, but I also talk about cave people um, and, and not just cortisol, but, you know, all the hormones and neurotransmitters that, that are important for risk-taking and decision-making. Um, so like an interesting fact is, because of you know how we hunted on the savannah when we were living in caves, your adrenal glands actually register risk before you're conscious of it, but that still plays out on the trading floor. Um, and you know under stress, you get higher levels of this hormone cortisol, and we've definitely seen that during lockdown. So a lot of these things actually we're seeing much more now. So for example, cortisol is is um, you know applies to all genders. Um, it's more related to status, but when somebody has high cortisol levels, it does affect the people around them. Um, and you know, women who live together or work closely together synchronize their menstrual cycles, and that was because in the cave they needed to be fertile at the same time because the you know infant mortality rate was so high, um, and it was all about passing on the alpha male's genes. But I have a friend who um, has a, a an app that tracks women's periods and they have 120,000 users. So she's now got data to prove that because of the, you know, chronic low grade stress of lockdown and COVID, 
that people's hormonal cycles have changed like significantly. So if we know that's happening in women with hormones that, you know, there's a, there's a very like visible way of knowing what's happening with those hormones, then think about what that means for you in terms of how stressed you've been feeling and how that might be affecting your decisions when it comes to work. And, and that's kind of why I said it's so important to just be as aware as possible of what's going on for you. I mean, during some of those crises that you mentioned, um, when I was coaching, there were the highest number of heart attacks in financial services that had ever been recorded, caused by high cortisol levels. And I've coached people who, who said to me, I was getting chest pain for months, but I never thought I'd have a heart attack because I'm young, I'm fit, I, you know, I don't smoke or um, have a family history. So I think this is another really important time to go back to those basics, to understand that our brains and bodies are wired in a certain way that was for survival in the cave times that's maybe not that helpful now and it's certainly going to be damaging if you're not aware of it and that goes back to to, to the points you made about you know hydration diet sleep mm. uh and so on and so forth which uh, you know are are, are I, I guess more well known and followed uh yeah. or understand it uh or but people understand them today than, than they did or even five years ago i would say yeah, totally. I mean, you know, in the in the thirteen years I've been consulting for financial services, the understanding of that has improved dramatically. Something like mindfulness that you could not even talk about at a you know an asset management company thirteen years ago <laughs> yeah. is now everybody knows what it is. I remember someone saying to me, "One day it'll be like going to the gym," and then I just remember this moment in the last couple of years where I thought that that time has come. You know. Um, so I think what I'd add to what you've just said, because, you know, we've experienced this unprecedented global stress, is to actively have some stress management activities as well. So, of course, if you're, you know, you're sleeping well and you're eating well and you're exercising, that's all good and that's, you know, probably enough. But because there are ups and downs, it's good to actually know what you can do if you're not at your best. And you know, that would include things like um, meditation, but also taking good supplements like probiotics. And, you know, you know, I'm mad about magnesium, but I'm sure the sales of magnesium have gone through the roof during lockdown because um, it's a mineral that gets depleted by cortisol. And, seven, you know, 70, 75% of people in the modern world are deficient in magnesium. You can't really eat enough nuts and seeds and leafy greens to make up for it if you're deficient. So, you can take ta tablets and capsules, but it's best taken through the skin. And there's a lot of bath salts and skin sprays and things now that people can use. Um, so I think, you know, people um, in financial services find that really helpful. Moving on to uh, intuition, intuition and trusting your intuition. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously in investment management, uh, trading or any of that kind of activity, um, you know, there is you know, your fundamental analysis and you know, process that you go through in making that decision. Um, but there's a fair amount of intuition that goes with it as well. Um, mm. What are the sort of things that we need to, uh, to think about when it comes to intuition? Well, I just want to make a segue to something I said just a minute ago about probiotics. So, what, so basically intuition is knowledge and wisdom that you've gathered throughout your life 
that's stored in the neurons in your brain and your body, and particularly in your gut neurons. And because you can't remember everything that you've ever experienced in your life, but obviously you've had experiences, you've built up wisdom from that, that's basically what intuition is. And um, we've known for a long time that there's a very significant nerve connection between the gut neurons and the limbic part of the brain, which is the sort of more emotional, intuitive part. But what we know now is that there's actually a three-way communication between the gut neurons, the gut bacteria, and the limbic brain. And so there's a direct gut neurons to brain through the nervous system, but the gut bacteria separately signal to the gut neurons and to the brain through chemical messengers in the blood. It's called cytokine transmission. And so actually having your gut bacteria in good condition is important because if it's been ravaged by stress or alcohol or antibiotics, then it sends out bad messages and that affects your gut neurons and your brain directly. Um, something called paracrine signaling, which is how um, you know cells next to each other leak out information to each other. And so stress makes cells leaky um, in a bad way. So taking probiotics is actually very, you know, it's, because it's physically good for your gut bacteria, it's, it also helps, like if it's in a bad state, your intuition will be cloudy, you won't be able to trust yourself. If it's in a good state, so if your body's in a good state, then your brain has access to that information that's stored in the gut neurons. And so I know a lot of um, uh, traders and, and um, asset managers do journaling of their trading. And so journaling, whether it's of the trading or just life decisions, is a good way to raise awareness about your intuition and how you make decisions and how they work out if you go with logic instead of intuition. And obviously, if they're aligned, it's easy. But if they're not, and I think this is changing now, but if they're not, most people would make their work decisions based on logic because they would feel they could at least explain themselves if it went wrong. Um, you know, people would say things like, I'm not going to go to my boss and say, I went with my intuition as my explanation for you know, a bad hire or a bad investment or something. Yeah, um, I do yeah. think that's changing. Yeah. I think with all this, you know, the neuroscience and the, the gut um, science and everything now, people are more willing to accept that it's real and, and then to like reconsider it. But I think for a long time, it's just very undervalued. Yeah, and that's a ver very good point. Is uh, right now, uh, guy, could you see? I have my have my notebook with me, so uh, I I I'm one of those scribblers. So I usually to make sure I I remember because because uh, it actually helps me to remember if I write it down, uh, even though mm. I probably won't look at it look at look at it again. But all of those things uh, certainly start to register something in your brain that you know yeah. you need to come back to. <laughs> I think that's uh, that's very interesting. I think that's I don't think that's necessarily understood uh, by mm. by many. So let's take another extreme um, where we have you know situations where you know typically as we again we have in in investment management or or, or even wealth management where you where you've won numerous numbers of times and you end up taking bigger risks only to 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 uh, to be humbled by the market. Um, um, talk us through those kind of emotions, because um, uh, I know, again, I think that's very interesting in terms of how do you stop yourself from taking too much risk? Hmm. Um, so I like to always align the emotions with the hormones, because I think that just makes it so much more like meaningful for people. Yeah. So basically with risk taking, 
your risk appetite correlates with your testosterone levels. So if you take a risk and it comes out well, then your testosterone levels go up. And, but then also your risk appetite goes up. So what you've just described about people taking more and more risks and then it failing is my favorite analogy for this is dog fighting. So if you have two equal sized dogs and they fight, um, then the one that wins becomes the alpha dog and his testosterone levels are higher and he will go around looking for another fight. And he's statistically more likely to win the next fight because he's just had a win. The dogs that lost, um, basically gets a shot of cortisol. And so he slumps and he goes and hides in the corner to recover. Um, you know, like what I said about recovery after stress. And so this alpha dog picks a fight with another dog, wins, um, keeps doing it. And then his testosterone levels get so high that it actually distorts his vision. And um, I mean that sort of literally and metaphorically, like it distorts your perspective. Um, and so he'll pick a fight with a dog that's twice the size of him and he'll lose because it's it's more about him thinking that he could win any fight than actually judging you know the physical data so then when he loses the testosterone shoots down and the cortisol shoots up and then he goes off in a slump and it you know he's got a, a bigger recovery and so again going back to the sort of caveman things or the you know more sort of primal things we know that when animals are going to have a fight that they empty their bladder and their bowels so that they're more streamlined. And we also know that when this is going on in, in you know, with investors, when they're taking more and more risks, that the male bathrooms get used more often. So I don't know if you've read The Hour Between Dog and Wolf. No, no, I haven't. No, but I'll, I will now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that book is written by a former trader who became a professor of neuroendocrinology, right. which is nerves and hormones. And, you know, he the whole book is about what I've just summarized in a few lines. And so, again, you know, it's all about awareness. It's, it's understanding that every emotion that you experience is correlated with a hormone in your body. Um, and that, you know, you have more potential to master those than we ever thought you did before. Mm. So, you know, there was definitely a, a feeling that people get overrun by certain emotions and there's not much they can do about it. But we know now that you can regulate your emotions a lot more than we thought you could. Mm. And, you know, emotions aren't bad. They're good. You need a certain amount of emotion to make the best decision. You just don't want too much or too little. And moving on, we, we have a whole list of questions here, but uh, um, there are a couple of things that I, I've heard you, you know, on, on a few podcasts uh uh, or, or um, uh, sort of you, I mean, as a TED talk, I remember in Brazil at one point, uh, where there was a discussion around uh, artificial intelligence, and you know, one of the things that uh, uh, we we think about, um, certainly, I think about a lot, um, given the technology has taken over a lot of our uh, you know working lives, be it you know uh, payments to. Um, uh, to analysis um, and uh, you know robots that do everything for us. Um, maybe talk about some of your thinking around artificial intelligence and you know thinking about the very first topic today was was about resilience. You know how do we build resilience to be able to you know ensure that we can work with technology rather than being completely overrun by it. Mm. I mean. You know, I'm a big fan of technology, but technology should be like a toaster or a hammer. It should work for you. 
it shouldn't be telling you what to do kind of thing. So mm. I think if we, you know, that's, um, that's been an interesting way for me to think about technology. And for even what I, what I can say about technology changes all the time. So since that TED talk, I think was in 2015, the one in Brazil, yeah. um, you know, I, we'd always talk about something like a, you know, robotic surgeon and then say, but can it make a cup of tea? You know, we can, we can do many things and people talk about voice recognition and, you know, face recognition. We can do those things too. Like we shouldn't feel threatened because at the moment there isn't, you know, what's called a universal AI that's doing everything that we can. So I think it's definitely about harnessing it to make our lives easier, not feeling threatened by it. Um, keeping up with it, I think is really important. They, they sort of say that, um, you know, if you were over 35, by the time a new technology came into place, you're always going to view it slightly suspiciously and try to get to know it, but not always feel fully comfortable with it. But if you think about, you know, kids these days that grow up with mobile phones and social media, that's normal for them. So they don't have that slight level of suspicion or sort of wanting to master it. Um, actually, I had this really sweet conversation with my godson the other day where um, he, has an, he had an Alexa in the background. And then at one point he said to me, do you have Alexa? And I said, no. And I said, what do you think of these people that, oh, he's eight, by the way. Um, <laughs> what do you think of these people that say that Alexa, you know, listens to what you say and, um, you know, gathers information about you based on that? And he said, I don't think so. I think only people who are really paranoid would say that. But, you know, I know so many older people that definitely Believe you know, that, feel yeah. suspicious about yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was really eye-opening for me, just the way that he said it. And I thought, God, I feel old. Like, I feel like one of those paranoid <laughs> old people. But, um, yeah, so I think that, I mean, you know, for instance, I'm passionate about things like robot carers because – you know, we've got a huge dementia crisis facing us. And no matter how much you love your parents, if they ask you the same question a million times a day, you'll eventually get fed up. But a robot will never get fed up of your parents. Mm. And so I think there are so many good connotations for it. Um, I just think we have to be very mindful of it and, um, you know, just, yeah, sort of not let it run away before we really like understood the implications. I mean, I think in that TED Talk I talked about um, a Native American Indian practice of if they're going to make a big decision for the community, they sit together in a circle and they imagine the consequence of that decision seven generations into the future. We don't even think about the consequences one generation into the future. Um, so I think it is about, you know, well, it kind of brings us back full circle to your, your whole future leaders idea, which is about thinking about the future, identifying who, what, you know, where is going to be important and, working with that knowledge in mind. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, that's very much the thought process we we had because there's just a huge amount of technological tra tra change, you know, happening uh, and people being able to uh, adapt to that change um, is, I, I, I mean, equally, equally impressed at how quickly, for example, you know, my uh, my daughter uh, is a complete fan of TikTok, <laughs> and suddenly mm. you find how many adults are also on TikTok, um, and and how quickly it, it you know I'm sure 12 months ago it didn't even exist, uh, and yeah. uh, and now it's uh, it's so pervasive because of all the different algorithms it, it has, and and what's interesting is that you still have the people that are hugely skeptical 
and say, oh, you know, the, the Chinese are listening, uh, you know, to all the TikTok, you know, uh, mm. videos and, and, and taking data off your phone so they can hack it later and all these, all of these security concerns that are there. Yeah. And you always kind of wonder whether it's, you know, how much truth there is, you know, to I it. Know. And, um, and whereas, you know, my daughter, you know, I, I think she's aware of the risks, but because it's such a, an amazing platform and such a visual platform um, mm. that uh, that it, that it does amazingly well. I, I, I have to say I, I'm not in it, although I've uh, truth be truth be told, my my daughter has roped me into a few dances on TikTok, which I, I, I rather not uh, 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 share too much. <laughs> You know everyone's going to search for that. Not even going to listen to the end of this podcast. I know they are. They are. I'm, I'm not sure what I've just done there. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so, 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 moving on um, in terms of um, you know, uh, chat, you know, managing technology, staying on top of the kind of technological uh, technological trends. You know, being open-minded um, uh, to that change, not always being closed-minded or 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 or, um, or closed-minded to anything. In terms of sort of going back to to leadership, um, uh, and we've touched upon you know during this podcast uh, a couple of those points around um, you know, diversity, for example, um, is is obviously a, a big buzzword, uh, you know, at the moment. And from your perspective, from from what we've heard today. Um, uh, that seems to be quite critical to to organisational behaviour uh, and you know good behaviour. You know, what are your thoughts around that? You know, um, what should we be doing as a, as a company, for example, to to uh, to foster that? So you mentioned my TED talk in Brazil in 2015, but I actually did a TED talk at LSE in 2017 on I called it neuroscience and nationalism, but it's basically exactly about everything oh, that's yes, going on right now yeah, and yeah. it actually sent a chill through my spine watching it and knowing that I had said those things three years ago and that's what's unfolding in the world now so if you haven't seen that most and if your team haven't seen it I really recommend um, that you take a look at that but you know and I think what neuroscience gives us is a sort of it takes away some of the blame that can come up with this and it just says you know this is how our brains work and the, the sooner we admit that this is how our brains work, we can do something about it. Throughout this podcast, I've talked about raising from non-conscious to conscious, um, you know, behavior patterns and um, ways of thinking and, and, you know, all sorts of things. But unconscious biases, are, they're called that for a reason because you don't know about them. And if you don't know about them, you can't do anything about them. Um, I shared in that, that TED talk um, a graph of judges granting parole to young black men. And it's literally like um, three mountains, like it goes from 100% down to zero three times. And the point at which they're granting the 100% paroles is within an hour of eating. So if your brain's got fuel, you can it can use those resources to override an a conscious bias. So you have to know about it, obviously. Um, but you can override it. As soon as they went to like two, three hours since the last meal, the paroles were going down to zero. I mean, people gasped in the audience when I showed that that side. Um, so that's just one tiny thing. But, you know, skipping breakfast or, I mean, I talked about intermittent fasting, but, you know, you can only do that when you've got the bandwidth for it and you know what the consequences might be. Like, you wouldn't go to the gym if you were fasting. 
But equally, you probably shouldn't interview someone if you're fasting. Um, so there's that. And then, I mean, you know, there's so much research that shows that diverse, well, organizations that have a lot of diversity are more innovative. Now, from my point of view, diversity isn't just about what you look like on the outside. It's about how you think. But, you know, all the diversity officers that I've worked with say that, you know, what you look like on the outside has often led to a more different life experience. So that those things aren't necessarily correlated, but they could be correlated. I mean, you know, you can get a room full of people that look exactly the same, that think very differently. And you can get a room full of people that look different, but think, you know, have group think. So for me, it's about separating those two things. Obviously, the diversity agenda is important for humanity. Um, and I think for businesses that the diversity agenda, um, you know, that's going on right now, plus the cognitive diversity aspect is super important. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. Uh, because it's it is multi-dimensional it's just not one dimensional which i think is one of the challenges so in finance it, it's always been a lot more harder to to uh, attract uh, w- women for example or or even ethnic minorities to to the industry um mm. uh and and you know something some, certainly something that i've witnessed uh you know certainly over the last you know, 25 years uh, of, of of my career that that, that that has been the case. Although, you know, time has progressed and that, uh, you know, I think companies uh, and individuals start to recognise uh, the importance of, of, of having that diversity. But, uh, mm. you know, it. but uh, as we've seen, and certainly from, uh, you know, some of the recent, um, um, you know, rhetoric, uh, both in public and and in private life, <laughs> it's uh, mm. it's very clear that uh, you know this we're nowhere near solving it. You know, there's still a long, long way to go uh, before. Yeah, we can, yeah. Uh, before I, we I completely agree with you, but I think you know, like with technology, like with anything, it, it has you have to keep it at the front of your mind and you know try to progress against it every day. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Wow, gosh, there's a, we covered a, a lot of ground there. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been uh, absolutely amazing. So uh, uh, again, thank you very much. The last question, which is um, some something I ask everybody um, who comes on the podcast: What advice would you give your young self about career and how to live your life? Um, I think you touched upon some of it earlier on, but uh, yeah. uh, no. What, what would you? What advice would you give your young self? Um, I know the answer to that because I've, I've thought about it a lot and I, I heard this from someone else, but I, this is the advice I give to younger people, which is if you follow your passion, you will be successful. Now that sounds a bit trite, especially if somebody who's already very successful says it. And I think, I actually think that's maybe Steve Jobs said it in the first place, but Mm. I've really found it to be true. I mean, I felt so privileged to be a doctor. I really cared about my patients. But at the end of the day, that job wasn't really my choice. And, you know, I was mid-30s when I woke up and thought, what do I really want to do? What would I have done if I could have just chosen anything? And so, you know, the, the passion that went into setting up my business and building it up, this actually relates to resilience because... I had so much resilience for it because I really wanted to do it. And that just makes, you know, such a big difference. And when you feel like that, you find you find a way. And that's why when people say, what should I study at university, which I get quite a lot of questions, especially because people are more interested in neuroscience now. 
I always think just do something that you really enjoy because then you'll do really well and then the world is your oyster. If you do something because you think it's going to earn you a lot of money or give you a stable job, then you may not always feel like that. And, and then that's where your resilience can get affected later in life. So, that yeah, I think that's what I would say. Follow your passions. Maybe, mm. maybe uh, Guy, that's what we'll call this podcast. Follow your passions. Uh, <laughs> fo- follow your passion. Um, so, uh, no, I think that's very good advice. And actually, ironically, that's exactly the advice I give to everybody as well. Is uh, it? Because, that's so good to know. Yeah, because in the end, you know, uh, if you're going to spend your entire career, um, you know, uh, doing something, you, you've got to enjoy it. And, and then... Mm. You know, uh, and I think you described it quite well. It's where you probably will build your resilience. Whereas yeah. if it's something that uh, you, you know you did for other reasons, uh, you'll you'll never be good enough at it. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, it won't drain your resilience as much because yeah, yeah, because you because you enjoy it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Tara, thank you very much uh, for for your time today. I think that was uh, was an excellent uh, podcast and. Uh, uh, certainly I learned a lot again um, and certainly I've been busy making notes on all the things I need to go and read, watch and eat and drink um, yeah. and, and magnesium. I'm definitely going to put that on the list uh, yeah. immediately. Uh, but thank you very much uh, for, for your time today. It was, uh, it's always fun having you at our, um, you know, at our meetings, at our um, you know, presentations and, and now on the podcast and uh, certainly when lockdowns are over we would absolutely love you to come and see us again yeah definitely it's always such a pleasure to to talk to you and yeah you know i miss the office and the team and everyone so um yeah as soon as as soon as i can i'll be i'll be back there thank you thank you very much thanks tara so that was uh, Tara Swart, um, uh, excellent uh, conversation and something that uh, no doubt uh, you will need to uh, re-listen a couple of times to make sure you get all the little tips uh, and uh, references uh, to, to, to go and look up. And uh, obviously we're, we're very proud, happy and honoured to, uh, to have Tara working with us. Uh, so uh, with that, uh, thank you very much uh, for listening. And of course, please don't forget to email us on beyond at fgam.com if you want to ask further questions or indeed if you want us to tackle other topics that we haven't t- tackled so far. Thank you.